0: Hello, Distiller listeners. I just wanted to take a quick second and let you know that you can find every episode of The Distiller, along with photos, links, and more information on our website, which is thedistillerpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying these conversations about meaningful work, please tell your friends, share our posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, if you'd like to help us make more episodes, just look for the Become a Patron button on our website to learn more about how you can help support the work of The Distiller. Thanks.
1: just how I want good design to be. I want it to feel almost like it was grown and not like it was made.
0: I'm Brandon Dawson and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is industrial designer Colin Norrie. Colin is the owner and founder of Collective 10, an independent design firm, and although his background in design is varied, these days he specializes in and is known for furniture and systems design for companies like Herman Miller and Steelcase, and his client list includes design work for the Bloomberg offices in New York and the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati. He's not going to tell you this, but look at his website and you will see the numerous industry awards he's won, including, as he will mention in our conversation, Geiger's first ever win of a Neocon Gold Award in 2013, which if you didn't know, like me, what that means, it's a big deal in the industry. We have featured designers of all different stripes on The Distiller. I love talking with designers because they approach problems in life and in general in fundamentally different ways than a lot of us do. Designers actively look for ways to apply creative thinking to all sorts of problems. And generally they believe design is about more than just aesthetics. I have been looking forward to talking with Colin about his work and getting his insight into what design means to him, how he approaches his work, what questions he's trying to solve both in his immediate work and in his body of work for a long time. Colin and I met at the absolutely beautiful Red Feather Kitchen, a contemporary farm-to-table restaurant in Cincinnati's Oakley neighborhood. Hospitality specialist Sibilka Story opened the doors to us early on a snowy Friday afternoon. She poured us coffee and made us right at home. You can check out Angie Lipscomb's lovely photos on our website for a glimpse of this absolutely beautiful space as you listen. So I love the minutiae of furniture design. When it's done well, it's the perfect confluence of form and function. And when you get into systems furniture, as Colin does, the number of factors you're trying to bring together increase exponentially. My partner, Sarah Rose, always says I have a puzzle brain. I like crossword puzzles. In another life, my puzzle brain might have found its perfect landing place in this kind of work. But for now, I'll settle with being able to probe the mind of people like Colin and get a peek into how they view the world. And hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Here is my conversation with industrial designer Colin Norrie on The Distiller. Let's start off just, um, I like to let people sort of describe themselves. So tell me, first of all, what your work is. So um, I'm an industrial designer
1: um, by training and uh, I do a lot of product design Primarily in the in the furniture industry. So I came from a family of like architects and engineers. So it wasn't like, um, and I was actually planning on going to medicine. Okay. Um, so somewhere along the line in high school, got down this path of like, well, maybe I don't want to do that, you know? So a friend of mine introduced me to this weird profession called industrial design, which I'd never heard of. And uh, so investigated it more and found out that I really loved it. Okay. You know, I mean, I love the. To me, it was this um really nice blend of like the visual arts, science, business, it was like a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um and I think that like I think a lot of my family was kind of wired that way too. So I just that's how I saw the model, you know. Right, um, right. So that's what um so I've been doing that now for 26 years. Okay. Which is it sounds like a lot to admit it now I think about it. Uh, but um, it goes it. by fast. Yeah, yeah. And um, most of the work that, I'm um, a very small studio, so most of the work that we do is in the furniture industry, like I said before. So, like, contract furniture for office. Herman mm-hmm. Miller is a really big client. They've been a client ours for a decade. Um, outdoor for hospitality. Um, so, kind of, like, interestingly enough, the all the things that make either interior or exterior spaces kind of, Really useful mm-hmm. and memorable, um, and hopefully compelling at the same time. So,
0: what what all falls into industrial design?
1: So, industrial design is really, as a profession, has really changed. But um, at its core, it's really anything that's mass man that's manufactured. Okay. Um, it used to be mass manufactured because it really started um, in the '30s and '40s, and took you know took a lot of, I think, a big growth in the '50s. Mm-hmm. Um, with consumer products and auto right. and things like that, and so, but nowadays because the ease at which an individual can manufacture something, yeah, that kind of or, everything's yeah, manufactured. yeah, can be very degree. low. You know, in the scale of Etsy to the scale of uh, a yeah. you know a large corporation, so it's it's rather broad, and most people don't know what it is when you bring
0: it up to them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but you've done you've done product work, you've done furniture work. Just looking at your CV, you sort of started out maybe in the product world yep. and then moved into furniture. So. When I got out of school, I
1: moved to Chicago, and I worked um, doing product design, primarily like consumer products. So packaging, um, consumer products, and then got into this. My transition into what I'm doing now was kind of um, like anything in life. You just kind of a path comes down your your way, and you just say, all right, well, I'll try that out. So I got offered this job um, working for a firm that did Architecture and interiors, mm-hmm. um, but primarily for trading floors and stock exchanges. Oh right? wow! So what a you know what a weird world that yeah, is, right? Yeah. So um, and this was a time when that field was still really. I mean, the, the open call, open out call trading was still really big, yeah. and you know, obviously, electronic was coming on, but it was still in its infancy. So the weird thing about that world is that every single thing you see on a trading floor is designed by somebody mm-hmm. and made
0: specifically for that floor. So we have this firm. What, is uh, that, what does that even include? Because I mean, the oh pictures that we see of the trading floor, nobody's using furniture, they're standing, shouting right. at each so other. so exactly,
1: so the kind of stuff. So first of all, um, you know, I always like this analogy that it's like one of the most expensive spaces that you can build for mm-hmm. starters. Um, at that time, you know, an office space was like $150 a square foot in Chicago and the trading floors, they spent about $750 a square foot. Wow. So everything from the raised floor to the technology to the trading desks to like anything you can think of, even sure. the seats, there was nothing like really bought off the shelf other than um, when we started using some flat screens or stuff like right. that. But I mean, every single thing was custom. And nothing that. can
0: be extraneous.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is like, uh, I, I can't even describe it. It's like a mix between, you know, um, a Shook and an office and like a triage unit all at the same <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've been on the floor, I was on the floor, fortunately, for like some really great things. Like when I happened to be standing in the Chicago Optimist Exchange in the pit where Chrysler was sold, because um, wow. I was having a meeting, right? Uh-huh. We had these meetings all the time. We stand in the pit, people trade around us. And as I was standing there, Lee Iacocca. Made a bid to buy the company. Oh my god! And like a third of the floor came and jammed us in. That we were locked <laughs> in the pit. We couldn't get out. This woman and I and another gentleman and uh, and I'll never forget that. It was like one of those things. Like yeah, how fast commerce happens. Well, it happens this fast. Right. And,
0: uh, sort of stuck in the running of the balls.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was one of those great things. Um, yeah, thankfully there were was a uh, we were pretty protected, but it was quite a quite a quite a scene. Hmm. So, um, so I got into that world, and that just was one of those things where when you have to design everything, it's kind of like you have to learn about everything. So right. um, it was more fabrication than manufacturing, but it was a really great exercise for a few years and doing some stuff. And we did work not only in the United States, but I worked on trading floors in in Paris, and Tief in Paris, and <clears throat> the Life Exchange in London. Um, we did two in... Um, to in what a China. specialized world. It was a crazy specialized world. And I think there was only a few firms at the time doing it. And hmm. um and honestly very lucrative world. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> we sure. had a very yeah we had a very nice office and a very nice firm <laughs> and it was really we had a lot of fun. So um, but we worked a lot. So that's kind of like this weird transition into I would say furniture scale because prior right. to that I'd been doing more things that you know I always joke that stuff you can't you can put on shelves. Yeah yeah. Um, and then I transitioned into this world of um, furniture where a, a friend of mine um, had a, he worked at an architecture firm. And one of the partners in the architecture firm had Steelcase, which is you know the largest contract office manufacturer here in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, probably in the world for that matter. Um, was looking for some industrial designers. And okay. had, like, he had had this relationship with Steelcase. And so I got hired there and worked there for several years and built up a big staff and, you know, just, that was like my transition into that world and what i found about it was that i really enjoyed the scale of it you know mm-hmm. i kind of feel like that like maybe i was somewhere between like a jewelry maker and an architect and this kind of just fit the fit the bill okay um because i grew up with this real appreciation for design from my family and our discussions i mean we would we would debate things at home and stuff like that so which um some people might find
0: odd but like it was just kind of like how we did stuff no but know? it was in your consciousness you grew up aware of design as a thing a lot of people don't right right don't have any consciousness that design that the things that they encounter right. or right. sit on were made by somebody and exactly. were designed by someone yeah right and I also had
1: was lucky enough to have a dad that just th- thought he could make anything hmm. you know um not that he was such a skilled craftsman but like there was just things that he would be like oh well I'm an engineer and I'm like, I can figure this out. This can't yeah, be yeah. that hard. Somebody figured it out. Well, I can I'm, figure he's it. always like, I'm probably smarter than the guy who did this, so I can do <laughs> it, <laughs> which wasn't always the case. But um, so, needless to say, it was like the whole trial and error yeah. of growing up um, and watching stuff like get built and fall down. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was okay to do that. Like, it didn't have to be perfect. Yeah. Um, and I think that really was a, a big eye opener for me was yeah. like, that you can really kind of experiment in the world. Right it doesn't have to be so finished.
0: There's a so. there's a phenomenon I need to go back to the episodes. I think your episode will be episode 49, so there's been a few there's a phenomenon that I've experienced that there are, you know, there's two kinds of people in the world. One of the ways in which you can say there's two kinds of people in the world is people that grow up with the idea that ideas can that their ideas can become physical things in the world and people that don't. That that have no sort of inherent or internal sense. That their ideas could become physical realities, and I really do think that it's a that it's a pretty clear divide between those folks and and what they end up doing as yeah, a result.
1: I, I I completely agree, and I, I think there's like two parts to it too, and I think that one being kind of shown that you can make stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and whether that be a digital product, or whether that be a piece of furniture, or whether that be your own home, um, or whatever it might be, um, that. You know, the whole world's full of inventors, right? So, especially when you go, Oh, I'm an industrial designer, then they sit down with you and share every idea they've ever had. Let me
0: show you my drawing. So,
1: exactly. Here, can you make this for me? Um, So, but I think that like the pulling back the curtain and knowing, like, understanding how things are made. Mm -hmm. um, And I always say that to my kids, I'm always on them about that. I'm like, damn, how much time it took to like make this or like, you know. Yeah. Show some respect to that. You know, <laughs> um, it's always advocating for the designer. It's right? somebody's work. It's <laughs> somebody's work. Yeah. So I think that like pulling that back and going that, like, yeah, it doesn't just magically happen. Mm-hmm. Like people don't just go, oh, there's glasses in the world or there's chairs in the world or, yep. you know, there's a lot of time spent in things, probably more time than people really fully imagine. Right. Um, years of time. I think that like what's cool about that is once you pull back the curtain and say, like, wow, I, I understand how that is. And that's, Truly what what I what I do as a profession like I just help people make stuff, even the manufacturers we work with now, you would think that oftentimes that they're like, "Oh yeah, I totally know how to do this mm-hmm. you know we make this we sell these products um, but when you do something that's slightly different from what they what they normally how they normally produce something it's like derails their system right 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 so I think there's that level of uh, kind of like being a catalyst for Trying new things, and I—that's really why I feel like the industry, um, in particular, what I do, uh, it gets so much excitement from the people you talk to about it because mm. they're like, "Wow, we—we we all know how to make, you know, pencils, yeah, yeah. right? But like, how can we do some, make some new writing device that's as cheap as a pencil? Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea how to do that. That's what they would say. But like, can you come up with some ideas? So, like, to me, my currency, I feel like with my clients is really outside of experience and just um, like I like to say is when I'll stand up in front of clients and talk is is like, you you know, what makes me a good designer is I've made a ton of mistakes, you know, which they always find like kind of like funny instead of me being maybe more egotistical and saying why I'm so great, look at all the great awards I've won. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I've just made a ton of mistakes. I'm like, so I can save you guys from doing all that, right? You know, I mean, like, we've experimented so many times. Right. And and not so much failure in the products that sell, but failure in getting to the products that sell mm. um, as quickly as possible. And, you know, and I wanted to talk about this today I was thinking about on Drive over here, but, like, to me, you know, people go, what is, you know, what, like, what makes design great? And I don't understand it, you know, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to pinpoint when, it, when you have a finished thing, whether it's a finished album or mm-hmm, whether it's mm-hmm. a finished object or uh, maybe a piece of architecture or even art, something that, you, that the person's demonstrated what they've done. And I think that to me, as I've gotten older, what I appreciate so much about it is, you know, there's kind of two parts to it that to me makes great design. It's courage and questions. Hmm. So like when you're answering the right question, you can really be successful. And I just find that that's a real area where, the world doesn't know where to go. Like, what questions should we really be right, answering, right? right? right. Um, I made that comment about, you know, climate change when I walked in here. It's like a good example about that. It's just, there's so many questions. What questions should we really be answering? So, yep. one, being able to understand that. And secondly, courage. So like for a creative person, a screenwriter, a musician, whatever, it's it takes so much courage to like put yourself out there. Hmm. And uh, when people haven't done that and their professions don't lend themselves to demonstrate who they are or what right. they do, they don't really kind of have that appreciation for it. But yep. um, it, takes some, it takes a lot of yourself to put in, you put into it. And then when you, you got to like, got to step up and be like, all right, I'm going to put this out into the world. The world might not like it or yep. the world might you know, love it. Um, so I think those like, to me, when I meet designers um, who are some, maybe some good friends of mine or people who I really admire, I feel like that like, the things they pursue and just like the courage that they
0: throw into it is yeah. really inspiring. It's, like it seems it. like um, you can—I've I've done a lot of interviewing and hiring of people. And one of the things that I think is a differentiator of somebody who's early career versus sort of experienced is willingness to talk about failures, willingness to talk about their weaknesses. You ask somebody about like, when's the biggest time that you screwed up? And somebody new in their field isn't, isn't going to want to show the weaknesses— Somebody later on, yeah, they have the awards, but they're also going to be cognizant of the fact that those, those failures and those mistakes were what got them to the better right. ideas. I was also thinking, just as you were saying, that, I just read an article last week in The Atlantic or something that was talking about, um, I think the article was on the failed promise of technology. It's basically, like, why are we not driving yeah. flying cars? Yeah, and where are jetpacks? Yeah, exactly. And the answer... Uh, that the that the author of the article gave is because the the brightest minds of our time are not solving the biggest questions of our time, um, because profit got in the way of progress. Right. If you want to simplify it to that, it's interesting to hear you sum it up that way. Um, tell me a little bit about um, the process. So you've done work for, like you said, Herman Miller and Geiger and and Steelcase, and. The stuff, if you go to your website, um, you do—and I'm going to get the terminology wrong, so can, correct me on this—office systems. Sure. Office environments. So, um,
1: and this is kind of a unique thing, I would say, So, mm-hmm. which I didn't appreciate you know, with anything. Like you, you know, I went to— um, I went to a good high school, and I got into college. And I'm like, "Well, college isn't really hard the first year." And then you're like, "Oh, because you went to a really good high school." And then you get out <laughs> of your school, and you get a good job, and you like have this great job. And you go to a new job, and you're like, "Why am I like you know like wow, that was a great job. I don't appreciate it." So You never mm-hmm. appreciate mm-hmm. anything. So I had this position in Chicago, and we were working. This was when I was we were working consulting for companies like Steelcase, and you know they make um, the way that industry was at the time uh, was set up. Is it about it was like 30% of their sales would be in systems furniture, right? Okay. Now, they're known for that more because it's a it's a bigger thing. It's like an architectural Is that element. the name
0: for it, systems furniture? Yeah, That's- they would call
1: it systems furniture. Okay. Um, and meaning that like, uh, it would run internal systems like electrical and power and data okay. and well well within, you know, so, so it's kind of self-sufficient. Yep. Um, so it was created like a micro-architecture with inside the shell of the building. The one that you could reconfigure with some degree of flexibility. You know? mm-hmm. People want to configure it, but they rarely did. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a complex problem because how companies really start to think about, um, at the time, we were researching a lot. Uh, um, and not just myself. We were with a group of you know professional researchers, psychologists, sociologists. Um, you know, it's really interesting. There was a... A, a project that was part of this that we were looking at where we are talking about social networks in the office, right? Mm-hmm. So this was the mid-90s, okay. right? P- prior to digital social networking. Right. And there was a woman, a PhD from Harvard, who had come up with this software that actually tracked how we interacted, you know, a group, hmm. right? So it interacted and it saw like, okay, how can you map over your interactions, your social interactions with you know, how the space is laid out. Right. Right. So either the furniture is helping or it's hindering what's going on. So which was, I was like, oh my God, it's the greatest thing ever because I could really understand at another level.
0: Designing for for people's actual
1: interactions, yeah. Because really what you're doing in in a systems furniture world is you're not really designing objects, you're designing settings. You're designing the work setting itself, you know, Mm -hmm. and everybody has different work styles to a certain degree um, and have different need sets. But at the same time, there's, you know, relationships that are really strong. Um, and that need to be accounted for. So like at that time, we were really looking broadly at not just how to make a product, but really about how to lay out a space and how to understand work. So we spent a lot of time talking about works for years Mm -hmm. and years. And out of that came kind of this a little bit of an expertise in saying, here's how we could build a system in a way that could afford for this group to work that way. Maybe not for everybody. Um, Those days of the yeah, probably in the nineteen eighties, where it was like a universal setting and everybody got like the same right. You get the same cube or the same that office. That was not at all what we were talking about, but that was a reaction to that. It Was like, okay, this industrialized pattern didn't work. Yep. So we need to make something that's more bespoke and more tailored to the company, mm-hmm. um, and we soon see that took off farther and farther. And people use companies like Google for as an example. But quite honestly, the things you're seeing office design today has been around for. Twenty years. Yeah, it
0: doesn't seem like it's No,
1: it's 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 new to the, a generation coming in. they excited about it, but yeah. like, I mean, honestly, there's ideas that we <laughs> that we have in sketchbooks. Probably, I still have of stuff that people are like, "Oh my god, this is the greatest thing!" And I'm like, but they just like, took
0: that long to sort of get into the collective consciousness.
1: Or? I think there's a couple things. One is companies are slow. I mean, it's a big investment. So yeah, you know, most companies' two biggest investment two biggest expensive. Expenses is their is their people their salaries and such and then their real estate. Yeah. So like when you invest in your real estate and you make it a certain way, you're not really doing it in a way like oh let's experiment and next year we'll you know, change it and do it this way. It's like we really want to think it through. Yep. So for that picture in time, it really works. Hmm. Um, the the flip side of that is is that the humans are humans are super adaptive, right? Yeah. So you can give us a terrible space. You can give us a beautiful space you can give us one that works for us it doesn't and we just to kind of adapt to it yeah you know um, so there w- there's not always pushback you know like if someone quits because they don't like the workspace and they're like okay we'll find someone else right <laughs> so it's not going to drive the whole design but we as the, being on the design side being advocates for the users we we really tried to push those kind of things um, so traditionally I think at that time interior design that was doing offices was more about like talking about flow and look and image and stuff like that. And we were really bringing in kind of from an industrial design standpoint and research about like how work occurred Mm. and those type of patterns Mm -hmm. and different states that you were in during the day. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to use frameworks, um, and these are a little bit old now, but frameworks about like, you know, we we call one, three Cs, which was concentration, contemplation, and collaboration, right? So you go through these different states throughout the day, Mm -hmm. right? Different people do it for different durations, and like, so how does your space really
0: facilitate it, yeah, yeah. facilitate yeah.
1: that? And so that level of thinking about it is kind of how it stemmed across like a lot of that systems work, right? So once you kind of come out of that world and you're like, oh, I've done some seeding and I've done all the systems work, all of a sudden other companies are like, wait, you've done, you did all that work? Yeah. Like, we want to hire you. Yep. So it really became an entree into a are lot they of companies. Actively,
0: are they actively asking for that? Or is it something that you have to go into client, you know? X and say, here's here's why this system is better than something that doesn't take this into account. I have been, I would say, somewhat blessed with some long
1: relationships. Um, You know, when I worked with, like, when I got into the industry with a company like Steelcase, I worked with them for like nine years. Hmm. Consulted for them for nine years. Um, And it was really more a choice on my part to kind of pull myself away from that company because you just... We, we started to revisit the same questions mm-hmm. after a few years. And I, I felt like I'm not learning as much as I used to. Okay. Um, I still, you know, admire the company. And I think there's some wonderful people that work there. I just it was not necessarily the place for me to grow. Yeah. So um, that was about a time that I, sh- well, that was a time when I had started out working on my own um, and started in the firm. And I think what was interesting about it is I, I, I feel like that I, unless I would have gone out on my own and really tried. Like, I'd never known how good a designer I could have been, right? Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was at a stage where I was managing people and I used to joke with my wife, like, I was designing more on airplanes, flying uh-huh. to California and back and stuff than I was sitting right. in the office and doing. So, one of those typical things. And I was young enough where I was like, you know, like, I don't know how good I'm ever going to be at this if I don't really, you know. Take the step. Yeah, yeah. take the step. Like, look, push everything to fail. Like, what could really happen? Yep. So, um so yeah, so it was that decision. And I, honestly, it's like, I still vividly remember it. I was literally flying into New York, seeing the Statue of Liberty because we were going around Manhattan. It's sun was setting. It was like one of those crazy things. And I'm looking out the window, I'm going, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my job and I'm wow, going to do this. that's the moment of... And I, I still, I can vividly remember it. Like I just had this feeling just talking about it like it was of that sensation of like fear too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. Triggers your fear instinct. But it was that decision where I just said, yeah, well now I'm going to find out how how good it's been. So... And I'm glad I did, obviously. But um, so from that, doing that work, where you understand this broad idea of the idea of work and how it gets done, um, I think that's started to really translate into other areas. So for a lot of the work, um, because of the contract office area is such a large part of the furniture industry. I mean, residential is, I think, a sales-wise, a bigger industry because more people have homes than they yeah, do yeah. offices, right? Mm-hmm. But... Um, but but i wouldn't say always the quality of manufacturing and and quality of craftsmanship is equal by any means right um so meaning the residential has a broad you know very inexpensive poorly made to extremely expensive that you know only a few can afford mm-hmm. um we really worked hard to have products that last that were you know won awards that like were really defined what, what that category was
0: and um Well, because of the stuff that you're going to design, I mean, I got to think the difference, one of the large differences between consumer home furnishings and office furnishings, that stuff's getting used all day, every day, year after year by hundreds, if not thousands of people. It has to not only work and facilitate the work, it has to hold up, has to be somewhat designed so that if something breaks, it can be replaced easily without replacing the whole piece. And that's part of what fascinates me about what you do is like when I start to think about the questions that you actually have to answer beyond whatever the the surface level questions might seem to be. There's a lot of minutiae that doesn't... There is,
1: you know what I mean? And this is the world of, you know, I joke, this is kind of the world of the physical world of manufacturing, right? <laughs> so um, I have lots of friends who do um, design in the digital world, right? And, you know, they're fascinated by what we do. And I'm also like... Boy, I wish that I could do that, you know, like in some ways. Like yeah. I don't, because it's not my it's not my thing. I love the physical world. Right. Um, I love the idea of uh being able to experience it in that way and share mm-hmm. it with someone else like you and I are right now. But I mean I, I say to him, like, well, the difference is, you know, you guys, it's a very complex problem to design a new app, right? With the programming right. and all stuff, but but you only have to get it right once. Mm-hmm. And I have to get it right over and over and over again. Just yesterday I was talking to a client and they're like, you know we have this product that's just selling like crazy. And we had to like, so expand who we were sourcing some of mm. the stuff from. Mm-hmm. And because we did that, it's just derailed everything, what we're doing, and now we're having to kind of redesign part of the product. And so, like, su- success breeds more yeah, difficulty.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and the, the, the inverse of that as well is that you can design that app and if, it, if you release it and it's not perfect, you can, you can release right. a new rev. Right. You do this with your, right. with your line of an sure. office system. Right. It's got to work out of the box. You don't get another chance to like do version you,
1: 2.0. It's right. If you sit on the chair and it breaks yeah. or you fall on the ground, you know, you could be liable where, right, right, right. you know, if my app doesn't work 100%, you just write a, you know, write a mean review. Right. <laughs> so right. There's like a different aspect to it. Yeah. Um, but they're just different problems, like I said. Right. So it's like just a different problem altogether. Um, but you asked me the question about, like, getting to here. So, like, when I went, finally started my own firm, what I found so interesting is, like, I think... What I really, I was, I I, I talked to a lot of people um, who were people, some I did not know initially and some are people whose kind of work I admired. And I asked them about like what it was like to work on their own or or having it from. Some Mm -hmm. people had, a few of the guys were like, you know, they had a hundred person design and creative firms. Um, Other people were like five people and which is, you know, between one and 15 makes up 95% of or 98% of, you know, most of the industry. That's true of a lot of professions. But I talked to them and they were just like, you know, they they really loved what they did, but they regretted that they weren't able to do the work anymore, the hmm. people in the larger mm-hmm. firms. And so I think that for me early on was one of the things where I was like, I really always want to be involved in the work. Yeah, Like, I don't, I'm not doing this so that I can go manage 50 people. Um, so how can we, so that was the problem. That was kind of the question I asked. Like, how can I do that, make a living, feel successful, you know, all those things without you know, having a huge staff or having you know having that model be the model. Right. Um, there are days where I wish I had a hundred people working for me, and I could just <laughs> go kick, do the work. Back, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that was kind of one of the impetus of it. And then, because I really, I loved, I wanted to see what I could do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I went through, you know, I think my education and early in my design career, like admiring someone in other people's work. And being like, well, how did they get to there? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like, how do you get to that that stage? And I don't mean just in like fame and exposure. It's more about like, like, that's a really great product. Like, mm-hmm. that's a really mm-hmm. great chair, or this is a really great th- thing that you did. Or I totally appreciate how you rethought this. You right. know, very familiar problem. The challenge with mine, with what we do a little bit, is there v- it's a it's a very accessible and familiar context in which your products live. Mm-hmm. So Uh, whether it be like a restaurant like we're in now or your home but i think that it the need for striving for some level of reinvention or uh innovation even at a micro level by that i mean maybe it's the material maybe it's the same sustainability maybe it's how it gets delivered maybe like all those things yeah like there's so many opportunities still to innovate in that area Hmm. that people are like you know how many more chairs do we need in the world and it's like yeah right Every time you introduce one, one goes away. You know, I mean, like, it's not like that every chair that was first created is still, still manufacturing. exactly yeah. Right. Um, but in the same regard, you know, why is your museums full of all those chairs that resigned in the past and there's not of, you know, watering cans that were been designed since, you know, like, so it's like there's, there's a, a value to it. It's an intimacy that mm-hmm. exists. Um, and I think that physical intimacy is one of the things I really love about. Yeah, yeah, this industry, um, you know, you sit upon things, you sit within things. You're like, it's a real, it's something shared with people. Right. Um, so I think that's always, you know, people are always at the center of kind of what what I do, um, and I think that's, I really think as I've gotten older, I think that's the thing I appreciate the most.
0: It's it's interesting. The you know, this show is about work, and I hadn't even really made the connection that part of what you do is design these environments in which yeah. so much of this work Work takes takes place place and facilitates it. And hopefully um, is both brilliantly designed, but also is somewhat invisible in that it so seamlessly facilitates what needs to happen. Right. That it just, it is the background. It is the context. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's like, if you're thinking about it too much, it's probably because it's not been designed well enough to do what you want to want it it to do. Yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a tough
1: person to go and sit in restaurants and do all that stuff because I'm like, oh,
0: yeah, they didn't
1: do a very good job here. Or uh-huh. Why is that that way? And, um, and, you know, when I offer my help, they're not always free receptive. <laughs> you could redesign this, you know, if you did this differently. Um, but I think that, you know, what's interesting about that is that, you know, I, I've grown to feel like that it, um, the particular products that, that I work on. Are things that you can't just do, like I'm using as an example, you can't just do you can't get right the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're a young designer, and you're like, oh, I'm a design chair. You're like, you know, there's like a lot more to it than just, you know, drawing one up or yeah. building one or whatever. I mean, not only in the comfort of it, but the longevity and the wood sourcing and understanding what's, you know, going on here and where it's coming from. And um, and I've been uh I've seen very high tech manufacturing, and I've been to, you know, Southeast Asia where we're building everything by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the outdoor clients, and what's so fascinating about that is that like we're all this need for product, this type of product we're doing, uh, just exists for everybody, hmm. right? Now, every culture kind of has their own variation on it. You know, like the chair um, is a kind of a new artifact in the world. Where most people sat on the ground, most people sat on pillows. I mean, entire countries and cultures didn't have real furniture in this course that, you know, from a kind of Western European model of like we sit at a chair, we sit at a table, the formality of it. So, it's really interesting to go back and see, be involved in cultures where kind of get an observation of how they live Mm -hmm. inside their homes, which I had a chance to do, and just to see how people use stuff differently. You know, because we have, I have very... I'm sure I have a very narrow biased view on like how things should be used because that's just how I've conditioned to. But it's also designing
0: there. for that culture and for that use. Yeah. And right. let's, let's take a second because I, I, uh, there's also um, anytime I interview somebody who's an expert at something, there's sort of the assumed context that the novice just doesn't have. Let's, yeah, t- right. let's talk about a chair. Absolutely. Let's talk about, uh, you know, an Ames chair or like, you know, just pick a, pick Probably a chair. chair. Tell me why, I'm assuming you probably have one in your head, even as I say that. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that chair. What went into, what, what do you imagine were the decisions that were made in the design of that chair? And why is that chair both functionally sort of perfect and also a work of art? How do you, how do you think about that?
1: Well, I think there's some criteria, you know, and, and I, hopefully, like, I give you some criteria to think about the chairs that you're going to experience, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's a lot of great ones out there and not just as just as objects and artifacts, mm-hmm. um, and also representative of a time. Mm-hmm. So, they were an embodiment of something that was going on. So, when we talk about, you know, what's the nostalgia behind the Eames stuff, which obviously Herman Miller's a proponent and manufacturer of all that work. In the 50s, there was like this real drive to kind of push consumer manufacturing, right? And Ironically, what the what Charles and Ray and the staff were trying to do was produce very low cost, inexpensive okay. furniture. <laughs> I think they would be it's not so much I, anymore. I would think they would laugh at how expensive <laughs> stuff is now, but yeah. or they would be excited because so they, they were trying make
0: it, to make it accessible.
1: Actually, they were trying to make it very accessible. Okay, um, and I think that with the growth in the fifties and the early 60s, in the most of the sixties, but um, of that that flexibility and that kind of like starting to experiment with manufacturing and. Um, you know, so they kind of said, well, how can we do this? And and they were very much, how can we do this on our own? We can make our own presses with a, hmm. a plywood chair. So those were things that were like embodied the time, with it, but they've kind of, we've been able to translate them into the world today, right? Like we still, I, I have some of those chairs in my home and mm-hmm. why in 2020 do I still have a chair for the that was designed in yeah. the late 50s? So because it still functions, one, mm-hmm. so there's a longevity to it. So I think that, one of the criteria is that like, you look at it, an object like that and say, what's its lifespan? Hmm. Now, where we talked about technology, where technology can get overwritten with different versions of itself, uh, seating, the, and seating as an example, doesn't really, that doesn't really happen. Yeah. Um, our legs are never going to bend the other way. You know, we're still going to need to sit. So all those kind of criteria. Now, there's a sense with, with furniture that there's a, a fashionality to it mm-hmm. where it can change over time to, to kind of have a shorter life cycle um, where something's more fashionable. Yep. Um, when you see a picture of an interior in the 70s, you're like, oh yeah, it's so 70s because mm-hmm. of, like, of all these things, yep. right? You have this idea. Same way with fashion and culture. So a chair itself, like well, just in the sense of uh, the chair you're sitting right now, like the idea of duration has, has something to do with it. Um, so the interaction we're gonna have on it, right? So is it scaled in such a way that there's one person and it's, it's a very formal sit. You can't, like, turn around and sit backwards mm-hmm. on It's kind of predictive that way. But also, the duration. So, it's comfortable for a certain amount of time. So, the classic, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, the some of the original cafe chairs in Europe, right? I'll use that as a great example. Um, they were lightweight and stackable. Well, they were almost stackable. And uh, because the cafes were only allowed to have, like, four or five tables outside, yeah. right? The streets were very small. So, all those constraints kind of drove the chair design Mm -hmm. and they got these inexpensive chairs that weren't that comfortable. So why would you not make, that's not such an un-American thing. Like why would we not make comfortable chairs? Right. But they weren't that comfortable intentionally because they didn't want you to sit that long. Yeah. They want you to get up. Too comfortable. You're going
0: to be there too long. I'm not making
1: money if you're just going to buy one espresso and sit there all day. Right. So I want you to get up. So there's an intentionality to it in terms of like, I want to influence your behavior. Mm -hmm. So you have to really think about like how furniture starts to influence behavior. And that's when we were talking about the office or we talk about outdoor or hospitality in particular, Mm -hmm. like in that world and hospitality, that's a big thing, is how how do the spaces wanna make you feel, Mm. right? And I was sharing this with a a client of mine recently, was like the difference between like office and hospitality because there's just really blending happening in life, in in the industries where some feeling of Residentials coming into the office and some of the performance levels of office are coming into the home, and that's transitioning into hospitality in terms of hotels and stuff, is that in the office contract world, we talk about performance in products and spaces. And we talk about it in hospitality, we talk about it um, in terms of motion. Like what is the feeling I want them to have, hmm. right? So when you come into a space, you're like, oh, I want this setting to feel trigger a feeling when you walk in, the seating to have a feeling and stuff like that. So the products themselves are kind of manipulating right. how you experience that, right? Uh, so there's like another level to like, it's not just a chair, it's actually driving. It's a key factor to like how you're experiencing the whole Shaping space. Shaping the
0: experience, right? Yeah,
1: completely. Um, and hospitality is usually a good example because they can be very intentional about what they're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. I want this to feel really energetic or right? I want this to feel very comfy and I want it to feel like, I don't know, very country, you know, like from an aesthetic standpoint, but all those things kind of contribute to the experience. Okay, so that's one is about to, just the, the the duration in which you sit, the intention of what you're doing. So, like to evaluate a chair, as an example, or your whatever you're sitting on this bench, is it like, well, what's the intention of why I'm here? Like, how's this making me feel? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, when things are out of scale or in small scale, you know, stuff like that. It's like when um an adult sits in a little kid's chair, like. Yeah. we used to do when we were at kids at Waldorf right yeah. you just sit there and you have your conference and you're like it's such a funny experience I loved it because I just thought see how the adults act differently when they're in this these little yeah, tiny yeah, yeah, chairs yeah. that we can technically sit in but they're way out of scale for us
0: but it changes your whole experience it it changes your, your demeanor your
1: experiences. it changes your demeanor Right. nothing else changed but you sat down on the little chair so yeah. we're much more uh, able to be influenced by the products than people are conscious of I think most of the time and I think mm-hmm. that's Something I, I talk about a lot, but I don't know if it's it's something that's easy to communicate. You know?
0: Is that the kind of thing that with your clients, you for anybody creative, there's sort of the level at which you pull back the curtain and the level at which you don't even try because you don't expect them necessarily to get it.
1: Um, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Um, yeah, I think it's your audience. You have to speak to the audience that way. I mean, I have some interactions with like clients that it is... We talk like in historical terms about okay. those kind of things. And yep. then other ones, they're look at you blank face and say, yeah. so wait, how are we going to make this? <laughs> no. And <laughs> you're kinda, it going to cost? So you kind of have to meet them where they are. Right, right. Um, but I think that part of my, you know, it would be unfair for me not to share all that with them, right? Yeah. So either do it in a presentation forum or a conversation over coffee or dinner. It's like really to try to get them so that, as we do more work, that those questions and distinctions are in their head,
0: and they know you're thinking about that, and you're
1: giving yeah. that level of attention and right. thought to what you're right. making for them. Like, what's successful about this? Well, why is it successful? You know, when you when you're evaluating. So, I'll get back to the question you had about how we how does something come about, like a product project, mm-hmm. which should be related to that. But how do um you know how do we kind of make decisions about things? So in design. Um, the, the way our, my work process is, our work process is primarily about like, we'll start with, you know, once we get like kind of a, some briefs are you know four or five
0: pages that talk about the
1: brand and give us all this direction. Well, and this let, stuff.
0: Me, let me stop you just for a second because yeah, it's yeah. actually a whole thing that oh, I wanted, we I wanted, I wanted to ask you about, and not because I want to derail you, but because I want to take one step back. How does, so does it start with the brief? Does a does a Herman Miller job start with a brief, or yep. does it start with you've you've created something and you're and you're giving them. The, an idea. The larger the company, the larger the client, the more
1: important the brief is to them. Because their investments can be larger. Okay. Right? Um, and not to say in, in, in the scale of or the ratio of like the size of their company, to their investment. But they know that like we want to get this right. Yeah. So we do some research. We really define the problem. So they give you, um, they define the problem based on, the the framework of their or the looking through the window of their brand yeah like this is what we think it should be based on what we think how we see the world and I think that's one of the things that it took me in the beginning of working to like really become better at mm-hmm. um, when I first started working on my own my goal I think subconsciously was to be a great consultant mm-hmm. and I did that for a few years and I got pretty good at that and like wow everybody liked me and I was really on time and I did all this stuff but I was like. But I don't know if they really like think my work is that great, right? Uh-huh. And like that wasn't the reason. Where are these other guys who were getting hired all the time, that who were now friends of mine, but were like total train wrecks, <laughs> and like <laughs> were awesome. But it was like, well, there's terrible consultants. Like, why do you keep hiring them? They're like late all the time. They don't show up. They don't, but they were just so talented. They're like, well, it's just like the end result is so great that.
0: What is the difference between the consultant work and the designer work in that I, sense? You know, I'll, I'll explain to you. So, being a
1: consultant for me in the context of industrial design was being hired to uh, like in a traditional time and materials kind of role mm-hmm. where you consulted to them and advise them on some product. Like you might say, okay, we have this brief where we want you to do it. Um, and then once that project was kind of like done, then it was like, everything was done. Okay. So the, for our industry in particular, which is not unique to this industry, but it's a little bit unique is that the, the other model that, that I, we use now and I've, Made investment in five or six years ago, maybe a little bit more now, eight years ago. I guess it's longer than now, I think about it. Um, to work on a basis of uh, royalty agreements, right? Okay. So we share. Yep. So we come to them. So they'll sometimes give us a brief. Sometimes they'll be like, hey, we really kind of need something in this category. We come to them with an idea. Uh, we co develop it and we share in the royalties Great. for the life of the product or for a time period of 10 or 12 years or depending on this okay so all the systems work all the seedings work so Mm. make a portion of all those things so and it's just a different way of working because you're really working in partnership yeah and and you kind of that's what i define kind of more of a designer role like where you are working that partnership where the consulting one is and when i still do a little this but not as much because um I find it, now that I've done the other way, it's not as satisfying all the time. It mm-hmm. uh, depends on the client for sure. But um, I think that like, because it, it truncates the value that I can add, you yeah. know, like the ongoing value that you can add,
0: uh, where it's like, there's this fine brief and it's, it's this fine period of time and things like that. I got so, to imagine as well that it changes your level of uh, of investment in various factors, when you are right. when part of uh, when you're getting a royalty on this thing, you're interested in making sure that it can be manufactured at low cost right. because, like all of these other factors, that as a consultant you're not bought into because you're at a flat rate or your time and materials. Sure. When you're getting royalties off it, you're getting royalties off the profit I mean, that comes from that. Exactly, and you're.
1: It's amazing how both how much more you're both invested. Yeah. Right. Um, because you both have some skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of upfront time and, uh, you know, value and costs. Um, and so, the way that we work is usually we take a fee to get to a certain phase. Mm-hmm. Like to say, okay, we've kind of thought about this problem, and we've come up with some couple solutions, and we think this is the right way to go. And then we present that and say, like, if we're all in agreement, this is the right way to go. Or it's enough that we can say, yeah, let's run with this. We'll get some people help develop it and whatever. Yep. Um, I have a tendency to take things as far as possible. Um, and I don't know if that's like being controlling or just being like, you know, everybody wants ideas, but really what they really want is a finished product. Yeah, yeah. So like, don't kid yourself, you know, yeah. like give me an idea for an album. No, really, can you just cut that album for us and <laughs> hand it to us? Let so, us go and sell yeah, it. Yeah, so it's like, you know, yeah, yeah they, uh, and we were just having this conversation recently about a piece and it's working with this company and um in Europe and they were like, oh, we love these ideas and we, we want to do more of this. And but in reality, I mean, like they just want to take you to take as far as you possibly yep. can. so uh, one, so I think it helps them a lot to sw- not swirl on their end. Right. Um, and I think that the more that you spend time working on a product or working with someone, they start to see your vision clearer than you do sometimes. Right. Mm. So I get that, like, I can see where you're going with this and like, if you could just take this a little farther, I know that you're like you're seeing a fork in the road, but if yeah, you just yeah, yeah. go left,
0: like we're totally gonna be able to do that. And, right, you know. So there's gotta be some risk in that though, too, because b- if you use the album analogy, they're very happy for you to finish and deliver the album as long as they like it. Exactly. If you go, if you take it all the way to the end and it's not what they wanted, well, then so here's the
1: thing about being a great consultant, right? Is you check in all the time and you make sure your clients are happy. And this is a completely different world, right? Um in a sense that, like, one, like I said, I'm kind of lucky to have some long-term relationships. Yeah. And so those are people who have done work before and even not so I've done work with a company. So, um, and I've kind of reached a point in my career, in my small little industry where I have name recognition and won enough awards. And it's not like, I'm not an unknown. Yeah, there's a level of trust. I don't have to do too much proof of concept anymore. Yeah. So most of the work that, uh, that I do People come to you with a brief or come with an idea and say, "Let's do this thing and let's let's get a contract signed and do it." Hmm. Every before it was, "Hey, you got us some ideas about you know?" They're still feeling you out. Yeah. So, I fortunately passed the honeymoon phase with everybody, and we're uh, we're, we're fully into you know just doing work and having yep. fun together. But um, what's interesting about it is that like you know I was saying, you have more skin in the game, but at the same time, there's a lot more risk, mm-hmm. but a lot more reward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I. Have a very small studio, and have no intention of having 100 employees, mm-hmm. um, and we're very profitable because we've made that investment. And it's yep. a it's a scary thing to say. You know, I remember, like I said, it was probably like seven or eight years ago, and I just finally said, like, you know what, I don't want to be consulting when I'm like, yeah, 65 years old. You know, like although I could probably add a lot of value. I mean, I just I don't want to be doing this type of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how can I do this in a way where I could add a lot of value? and I can reap a lot of future rewards in the process. So I find companies that have great sales. Mm-hmm. Um, they have great sales staff. Those are things, the questions I ask like, that's a real unusual question for, oh, a designer, like, you know, how well you make things? I'm like, well, I can help you make stuff and we can always make it somewhere else. But at the same time, like, what are you gonna do with it when I give it to you? Yeah. Right? So you really look at the business as a whole. Um, and you evaluate them as much as they evaluate you. But when you're consulting, you're like, "Hey, I'm going to throw some ideas at you. I'm going to get them developed a certain way." Yeah. And then we have to do that. So, hmm. the, the big difference for me is, is, I'm a uh, big advocate, a almost relentlessly big advocate for we have to make it. We just have to prototype, like all the time. And can't all people, be theoretical? Well, right. I mean, we can't. You can you know I can do renderings all day, 3D mm-hmm. renderings all day on our computer and animations and all that's great. But until we start building it, it's not really, uh, it doesn't really, the learning really is not starting in a big way. Yep. So And that's learning for everybody. Mm-hmm. So even people who don't really have the dis- necessarily distinctions about products that, you know, someone in my profession might. So, you know, we try to prototype, we do a lot of 3D printing, full scale and mm. at scale and mm-hmm. You know, a studio is full of littered parts that we've kind of like, oh, I want. I need to see what that leg looks like.
0: So I... Because you want to interact with it. You want to sit in the chair. Yeah, you and wanna, I want to do
1: it as, as yep. quickly and as efficiently as we can and be able to make those decisions. So try to make as many decisions, like in things in a physical form, because um, I think that's where really the... That's kind of the fun part of it. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Once we've kind of like... We feel like we've solved the problem pretty well. Mm-hmm. Executing that next part... Um, is really like the fun part of it in a way. Right. Not that the other part's not fun. It's just uh, sitting down with a blank piece of paper uh, would, would drive some people to probably to suicide every day. But yeah. like, you just have to, you know, get over that, right?
0: You got to start again.
1: You just got to start again off, every time. every project, there's a beginning. It's, it's just, there's going to be a blank piece of paper to start with. And, uh, and you think they're the same questions. You're like, well, I've kind of looked, and it's not. Hmm. You know, the questions are just, there's always a little variation on them. Or time has gone
0: by. What have you because obviously looking at your website you've won a bunch of awards, your client list is amazing what uh what piece of work have you done that you are most excited about most most proud of that you feel maybe and maybe there's aren't the same thing m- is the truest representation of who you are as a designer
1: wow um wow it's um it's funny because I feel like. You know, it's not that I'm not proud of the work projects that w- I've done so far. And I, I really wouldn't share them with people if I wasn't, like, proud of them. Mm-hmm. So, all that stuff I've been pretty proud of. I think that some of the, ironically, some of the current stuff that I'm working right now, I'm most excited about. Uh-huh. Um, because I feel like with every project that I get to contribute something new to it that I didn't have before. Okay. Right? So, I'm I, at some small level, I'm not the same designer I was when I did this is the first time as I did yeah. today yep. right so and that's probably true of a lot of people and a lot of things but I hopefully, just hopefully learning I can feel like that's going on um, and I think the speed at which I'm able to get to um, I, I get to here's, the speed at which I can get feel comfortable with ideas right yeah. is much better than it used to be you know five or ten years ago which was like you know very Van Goghish, kind of like struggling the whole time, kind of feeling like it.
0: it's out there, it's out there. I'm chasing uh, it, yeah,
1: chasing it. It's just nowhere yeah. to be found. Um, and my poor, you know, my wife and family, I'm sure suffered part of that too. <laughs> um, but I think that you know, in the past, I think one of the one of the most rewarding projects um, that I did in the last few years was, and it's rewarding for a couple different reasons. It's not just because oh, I think that's a great product and it's done real well. I did a um, a case good system for. Geiger. Mm-hmm. Geiger is a brand of Herman Miller, and they're, like, very high-end. They're like the, you know, Mercedes-Benz of of the furniture industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful company, great manufacturing. Just, like, they they did so many things right before I ever got involved. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I took a lot of the knowledge that we talked about gaining from there about work and how things put together, and, and we did this project together, which was the biggest thing I'd ever done. Uh, we did it in, you know, like a year or less to get all the major work done, which was usually like two or three years from mm-hmm. them. It was fast. Um, I think that was because part of that thing, like I had a lot of knowledge. This was easy for me to do because I'd already made a lot of mistakes yeah. in the past, right? Like okay, I man, hit knew the which direction, running. right? Um, and it just came together so well. Mm. Um, we won. Now they're a company that has been around for many years and had a tradition of... Uh, doing this type of work. like They were like the industry, a little bit of industry standard um, in terms of quality and design and stuff like that. I did never won any nearly major awards for this product category, which was the majority of their business. Mm-hmm. Um, you said Case Goods. What is that? For? So Case Goods are
0: freestanding. You can go there right now and see examples of all this work. So anyway, did... Well,
1: I was going to say, what was really nice about it is that we really pushed hard
0: um, to
1: make a very beautiful, simple, clean... Uh, not with a lot of options. I mean, they're, they had traditionally been one of those companies because when you make stuff out of wood, you can kind of make it anything, right? right? So when you offer standard product, it's like it's kind of standard because everybody modifies it and all this stuff. So I was like, look, if we can cover 85% of what people want and leave the rest to like us experimenting and the market kind of telling us what they want, then I think we'll be successful. And that was definitely the case. I mean, mm-hmm. they... You know, two years, three years into it, they're like, "We're doing some custom stuff." But we're like, not anywhere where, where it was before. We were kind of like a very expensive wood shop. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, what yeah. I mean, it was just like people wanted to
0: modify everything. Um, so and I, I think, wouldn't have realized that that was an option though when you yeah. do something at this level that people can come back well, and say, "Well, we like what example. you did. We need a custom." Let me give you an example
1: yeah. of the the product. So the product, um, uh, obviously, it was beautifully made, um, and we did a really nice job of kind of creating some innovation in the planning of it where it needed in a traditionally very conservative kind of market, Mm -hmm. like for private offices. And Mm -hmm. this product went into the open plan, and it was primarily for, like, uh, law firms and insurance and financials. So, very, uh, I'd say, high-end businesses, right, that were very image conscious, uh, where the lawyer. So, but to do a private office, a normal standard-sized private office, you know, an individual workstation that like Herman Miller might build might spend, a person might spend like $3,000 per person, chair and everything like that. So to do one of these work settings in the private office was about $25,000. Wow. So, I mean, and, you know, these lawyers are partners and they're like, yeah, when, and a lot of times they're just given the firms, like we're giving you 30 grand, you can put whatever you want in your office and that kind of stuff. Right. So when, when they're moving into new firms, so we had a lot of clients like that, which like pitching to people who just, you know, they wanted everybody's space to be different. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in it, but what I found so is we really were able to achieve some, some like really great details that didn't exist in the in the product category before, hmm. um, and we executed them well. And then you know the end result of what it kind was, of
0: stuff, for instance,
1: you know how materials kind of came together. Okay. Um, you know I'm a I'm a big believer in kind of like I make this analogy, kind of like designing like a tree, right? There's no screws that hold the branches on. There's no, like, so I love products that are kind of seamless. Hmm. Um, you know, I recently had to write about an outdoor collection that's coming out with one of the copyright people, like one of the influences it had for this thing, and this is relevant, is, you know, I was like one of the pictures I had that kind of drove the design of this thing, it really was like probably almost too much an influence, um, is this 1958 Where's 365 56? <laughs> and it's just this beautiful ragtop seamless thing. And I go, and it kind of like embodies just how I I want good design to be, right? Mm. I want it to feel almost like it was grown and not mm-hmm. like it was like made, you know? Right. Um, although I appreciate, you know, manufacturing and how it all comes together. I just like I don't want to see that, especially when you get into these higher end products, right? That's doesn't exist. So we um we moved this product, so the idea was that we had this for the open plan and, and the private office, and they traditionally only did private office Geiger. So it was kind of a new, new venture for them. Okay. Um, so it hugely expanded the statement line, but it really, what I taught them is that like, well, we have these core components we can use in both, and there's really not as much uh, new stuff as you think there's gonna be, because mm-hmm. they thought they were just gonna have to do two different completely right. things. So we were able to do a lot with a little, um, and I think that was just from years of knowledge on my part, and, you know, like trying stuff and not working and stuff not selling here or doing great there and saying like, yeah, let's not do that. So, it was been really successful for him, uh, which has been fantastic. But, you know, we at the award show, the show that uh, Neocon in Chicago, which is a big contract furniture show um, every year. So, when we launched the product. We won the gold award for the show. Hmm. And they had never won a gold award before, which I didn't wasn't aware of actually. Someone told me that much wow. later. So, and I just remember thinking, like, as I came back to the showroom, and they were all like so excited, and I received the award, and blah blah blah, and they were just like, they were so pumped. And I thought to myself, like, like here's a thing where just how hard we worked for a whole year has it enlivened this company, right? And just still today, we still talk about it, you know, and, like talk about the product and things that we've done, and. Projects, you know, I get salespeople just randomly haven't talked to in three years, sending me photos of this job they you know Hmm. won, and so it's just it's kind of fun in the sense that like you getting I get this feedback about how all these things we worked at like are really impacting a lot of people. Right, Um, we had to we actually had to redesign kind of their manufacturing process a little bit to do one of the things. Um, so I got to spend a lot of time with the people who made it and I, you know, so it was just really as a, as a project from start to finish, it was really cool to, um, not to even we're even done with it, but, um, to meet the people who made it, the people who were selling it, to yeah. like have that intimacy along the whole spectrum, which is kind of a nice rare thing. You don't get to do that with a larger company right. and kind of best of all possible worlds. Yeah, was I mean, really, like
0: deep work with the people, I mean, they
1: hired people just because they were selling so much and it was yeah. just like really felt good that like you know, an impact, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing and I'm and I'm really proud of um, I think the things that I tried to pull off and that, that we pulled them off and it was like the, I think I'm really proud of that, but I think on top of all that is the influence it had on the people in the company and stuff like that. So it's that's a cool thing. Yeah, yeah, know absolutely.
0: Know I mean? You talked really about good. the the Porsche, what are the areas are there are there areas of design that did you have three or four lives you would like to uh, get into automotive design or like what? what's the know, sexy stuff that you don't get to do but that you really enjoy I learning mean, about? I mean, I think a, an automotive project
1: is a really unique and interesting project because, you know, it's a chair on wheels. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it that, break it down to its fundamental thing, right? So, but there's so many factors that are so different because everything that I think I design... Is all about um, rest, relaxation, and you know, comfort, mm-hmm. right? And you're in, in stationary, right? So to right. do something where you have to think about all those factors in seconds, like the controls and the, you know, we have. I have constant conversations about cars with people. It's like I mean, I'm not really like a car guy. Uh huh. Um, I went to design school with several car guys who went on to design cars, and you know. Um, and love it, and that's what they ever, all they ever wanted to do. College, they would skip college if they could have. <laughs> but um, so that's like an area of really more of an area of inspiration than an area mm. where I'm like, oh, I really want to like do something in there, um, because I find that it's it's a really uh, it's a good timeline product to see how things have evolved, but it's also kind of to go back and go, you know. I could totally see the decisions they're making. Like when I see a product, you go know, like I could see the meaning. Yeah. And them going, yeah, I know why we did that. And like, I, I really have that appreciation for it. Um, it's like when you're a musician and you hear somebody play something, you're like, and blend it or edit it. Or when you're like, oh, I totally know why they did that. Right, right. right you, but now, maybe not everybody else would. Little glimpse. Yeah. So you're like, I really, so I have a lot of appreciation for that. Mm. Um, you know, I think that, you know, and I joke with my brother who's an architect who does a lot of residential stuff. I think I would have made a great, residential architect <laughs> because like I don't ever want to do skyscrapers and stuff. I wouldn't have been me to do that. And I think that the only reason I say that is because I like, well, if you would have wanted like a very modern kind of like thought through, because I think the scale of, well, the type of homes that I would be imagining. Like a Frank Lloyd Wright sort of a... Not, I mean, maybe not even that big, you know, uh-huh. like more like maybe some urban development okay. kind of thing. But um, because I would treat it like a product, you know, mm-hmm. like I would just... That was one of my frustrations. I think probably I didn't become an architect because I saw a lot of uh I think the tolerance of mistake is like was higher, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, yeah, there's stuff that's in code, but like that's not right, and well we'll just deal with that, you know like like no, you don't do that, you know i mean the, in our manufacturing world, it's like millimeters right, right, and they deal in inches, which is a pretty big difference um so I think that would have been fun to do, you know I mean, I think that those kind of things you know I've always been super uh inspired by air travel and Mm. and not flying in planes, but rather rather like, you know, uh, the Gullwing solar planes in the 70s and stuff Uh like that. Like I vividly remember as a little kid thinking like those things are just the most beautiful objects in the world. Yeah, Silent, no energy kind of things that, you know, go several thousand miles. And uh, so I think that that kind of, that kind of where design and engineering kind of like, yep and science kind of fit together to make something like that, I find that super fascinating. Mm-hmm. So those yeah. are like some things I think that like would yeah. be interesting to
0: challenge. Are there are there questions in your work that you are chewing on right now that you haven't really, uh, you know, riddles that you haven't cracked or, or questions that you want to get the wow. opportunity to answer over the next 10 years?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's, there's a lot of questions out there. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the... Uh, exercises I do uh, that I got taught by someone probably like 15 years ago is start every project with a, a question brainstorm, right? Mm-hmm. Not an idea brainstorm. Don't worry about ideas. Yep. So do this thing where just like, I have this huge whiteboard, like a full wall whiteboard in a studio and just like fill it up with all these questions. You know, a lot of the questions may be not really relevant or ones you can't even really solve. Mm-hmm. But what I find is that there's certain questions that keep appearing as <laughs> mm-hmm. I go through different projects they like how that get back up there you know like, right, is right. that just my subconscious or so I think that like they're your questions and not necessarily yeah, the questions you know, of the I project mean, I, itself I feel like um, one of the things that I've always been wired to kind of um, um, I don't know see the use a lens to see the world isn't like kind of a little reductive um, and I, I wouldn't say deductive but like reductive in a terms that like You know what's the smallest amount of space, or what's the Hmm. most minimal amount of tools, or what are the things like where the artifact or the space becomes, you know, more precious because it's more well designed. So that's kind of the analogy I was making about residential architecture. Like I wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't be great at doing a city block or urban planning, (laughs) but I'd be awesome at like just you know somebody's small house Um, because I think there's a level of intimacy to that. I think that with this transition of the generation behind us, you and I, wanting to have a little less object and a little more experience, Mm -hmm. right? I think there's a huge opportunity to, I mean, at least I feel like for someone in my profession, um, to try to blend those two, to go Mm -hmm. back to, you know, what is the experience of using this object or what is the experience of sitting in that chair and like getting that value back? Because we we got caught up in, inexpensive manufacturing and and consumerism mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s so much, and in the last decade too, but where it became kind of commonplace to say like, oh, you know, um, well, if I don't like that, I'll just have for a couple of years and I'll get rid of it, yeah. right? Where products we have now, um, I'm always trying to make sure that things that I design last as long as possible. Mm. I mean, I mean, there's just no, there's no planned obsolescence in anything that I do. Um, but I know people who have that planned obsolescence all the time. Um, we were just, I was just in discussions last night with a client of mine is on the West coast. And she, we were just talking about this very simple product that we're working on. And his thing was like, I just want it to be like, I want to have this thing until like, it's almost rusted out. You know I what I mean? That. Like yeah. just until someone's like, I have to it away because it just, the company doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you right, know, like right. it's that kind of thing. And, and, and I feel like that's an aspiration, but I think, what's underlying to that is that there's that experience you have with it, right? Whether it's nostalgia or, or, you know, just a, a comfort with it, um, or it's a trigger for something positive, mm-hmm. right, that you want to have. So the way I evaluate projects and objects in my life are kind of like beautiful, meaning, and useful, mm-hmm. right? Those are my three things. So like things I have in my home or things that I might want to work on, and they kind of have to meet two of those criteria. Yeah. So they're either really useful, like something we might have in our kitchen. You know, like, I got use this every day, so I'm always going to have this. Yep. Um, it's a beautiful thing where I don't really care. It's such a great whatever vase that, like, I don't care that it only holds one rose. Like it just makes you know, me happy to it's look just, at. It's, it's a thing that, right. And yeah. then meaningful is it, like I was talking about, like to, to trigger that meaningful experience for someone. And that, I think... Two of those are more immediate: perform- um, usefulness and beauty it can be um, a reactive, and meaningfulness is something that occurs over time. Mm. So, if you can have someone live with your your art or your music or your furniture mm-hmm. for a long time, it, you can start to attach that meaning to it. To experience kind of, you can co-experience things, life together with that yeah. song or with that chair. And I think that's like one of the things that I'm always striving to do, and I definitely don't have an answer mm. for it. But in terms of new projects, I'm always like, how can we make this really meaningful? Yeah. And to answer your question, some of those manufacturers are like, uh, what are you talking about? And I'm like, how can we make this more meaningful? Because we
0: really... Yeah, we want to want people to have it for a long. time. I love that answer though, because I mean, obviously, sustainability is a huge issue. We all need to be thinking about the companies that I'm right. working for. That's what comes up over and over again. But part of sustainability is is getting rid of planned obsolescence. Right, and so much of that has been technology is pushing us to accept planned obsolescence right. Right. in everything that we encounter. But when people, we both live here in Cincinnati. When people come to town who aren't from here, I love to show them. Like the buildings in Mount Airy that yeah. were designed by the C- Civilian Conservation Corps right. in the 20s and 30s that still are great and still function and right. still look like a million bucks because they were built well. I mean, the most one of the most exciting neighborhoods in Cincinnati was
1: built in the 1850s, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, a unique thing about our city. I
0: love yeah. that. Yeah. Last question so we can give these guys back their space and they've been very gracious in hosting us. Uh, we, when you sat down and before we started recording, we were sort of trading notes about our our kids. And Colin and I originally know each other because our kids uh, went to the Waldorf School together. What do you, um, what do your kids think about your work? How much um, discussion do you have with them about it? And what do you think that the way that you approach your work is teaching them either either consciously or unconsciously, explicitly or implicitly about work and about what they can do.
1: Well, I think I'm pretty explicit about it, probably most of the time, um, and in a way that's kind of like fun, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, you know, you know our family, you know my wife, and she does some pretty amazing things too. So I'm always she, does. she and her profession is very accessible in terms of talking to people and talk to the kids.
0: She's a she's a coach and a trainer, yep. and and so
1: we talk a lot about mindset and stuff like that. Yep. And you know, um, as much as I try to teach them about what I do. Um, and they see it, you know, sometimes I'm home working because we have something going on and I'm not at the studio. Um, so they kind of see that what that looks like mm-hmm. and we talk about it quite a bit. And also just, they have an appreciation for, like I said, how long something takes to go from mm-hmm. an idea to you to sit on it or to, yep. to be in the market or to be in your home or my, what it might be. Um, and I'm out of effort. I mean, they know that when I've been super busy and they can see that and we talk about it and... Um, and since my kids have been about 10 years old, I engage with them with on projects. I'll be like, tell me what you think of this, Hmm. like which one, and it's, it's not, most of the time they actually offer some pretty interesting insights because, you know, like anybody, you get locked into seeing what you want to see. Um, so I'm really good about like, Hey, what do you think about this chair design? Like, which one of these do you like better, you know? I'm sure the client's like, oh, my God, you know, your 15-year-old son <laughs> is picking a chair for you? No. It's about, like, engaging him about it. It's and, your secret weapon. And I also teach him about, you know, they ask me often um, because it's so accessible. That We'll go somewhere and go on a vacation or we'll go to a ho- restaurant or something. I'm like, Dad, what do you think about
0: the furniture here? Like, what do you think about do that they, space? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you talked about growing up in a design-oriented family. Yes. Yeah, so we Did try it? to
1: carry a little bit of that tradition yeah. on, for sure. Hmm. You know, I also make the analogy when people talk about how, you know, uh, I joke with my family and my wife. When my wife's like, "Oh, I had this great seminar, and there's 400 people there, and it like changed their lives and all stuff," and I'm like, "Yeah, big deal." I'm like, if "It wasn't for me, you guys would all be sitting <laughs> on the floor."
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: So I'm always like, "Yeah, don't undervalue me either." But um,
0: there's some context. Yeah.
1: So no, I think that they, you know, they know. I, I think like, you know, the idea of saying you're a furniture designer is like um, a misunderstood, you know, analogy for what it is and that's why I like to use the word industrial designer because it's not all I've mm-hmm. just done is furniture I've done other things too but um so yeah it's I think it's part of our I think that creativity is part of our kind of DNA in the family for mm. sure
0: I so. love it yeah well they're they're already doing great things so uh Whatever you're passing along to them is, seems to be working. Thanks, man. Colin, thank you. This has been great. I love getting a little bit of a, of a peek behind the curtain into the work that you do. And for people, uh, you, know, you can go see it all because it's all on the website at collective10.com. Thanks for the time. Thanks. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Red Feather Kitchen, a contemporary farm-to-table restaurant located at 3200 Madison Road in Oakley, Cincinnati, Ohio. Many thanks to Redfeather Kitchen's chef Brad Bernstein and hospitality specialist Sibilka Story for letting us in while they prepared for the Friday evening service. Redfeather's exquisite farm to table menu combined with the beautiful and inviting setting make it one of the gems of Cincinnati's vibrant dining culture and a great place for a great conversation. Check out our website for photos by the amazing Angie Lipscomb as well as links and more information. And be sure to say you heard it on the distiller when you call Red Feather for reservations. And of course, thanks to my guest Colin Norrie. What's The old phrase, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Well, talking about design is only half the picture until you see the photos of Colin's work, which you can see, including projects we talked about on today's episode from Herman Miller, Geiger, Steelcase, and more, all on the Collective 10 website at collective10.com, where you can also learn more about Colin and see the extensive list of awards that I mentioned earlier. Find all of that, links to Collective 10 on the web and on social media on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed by Justin Golden, logo designed by Scott Ryan, design and videos by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com, where you'll also find links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our show locations. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do rate and review The Distiller on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you want to help us make more episodes, just become a patron. Click on the Become a Patron button on our website for all the information. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson, and thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.